This is SG2 Perspectives, a conversation with SG2 experts and industry thought leaders about the biggest trends in healthcare and what we expect that's going to mean for the future of healthcare delivery. The reality is the health systems are always going to deal with this imbalance between supply and demand that reiterates the need for optimization. One thing came very clear in our research, and that's there's opportunity with team-based care across all service lines as a way to both improve access, but also optimize this precious workforce. Welcome to SG2 Perspectives. I am your host, Jamie Zage, and today we're going to talk about a very important topic, workforce. I've got some special guests here who are going to focus on the state of service line workforce and what organizations can do to position it for the future. My guests are Janelle Kwan and Jennifer O'Connor. Today's conversation comes on the heels of our recently released Service Line Workforce Guides. Janelle, let's just set the stage. Why focus on service lines when we're talking about workforce? Jennifer and I have been pleased to, when we're talking with organizations, they're starting to ask about the future again. That's in part some recognition that some of the workforce difficulties they're facing now are driven in part by not thinking enough about the future. And when we think about the service line workforce, they are certainly not immune to some of those workforce challenges that we've been hearing about turnover, burnout, and an upcoming retirement cliff. I read somewhere that roughly 50% of practicing physicians are 55 or over. When we look at those physician demographics and aging population nearing retirement, and then we look at some of the population demographics and aging population as well, and that's going to lead to higher acuity or need for specialty care. The intersection of those two really points to the direction that we really need to be focusing on workforce, specifically our service line workforce. The service lines are such a growth engine for our organizations that really does become an important piece. As organizations continue to face these workforce constraints, because I've heard you talk about it from a more general perspective, but from a service line perspective, what positions continue to be difficult to fill? Jennifer? It will come as a surprise to no one that nursing tops that list. But through our service line lens, the reason here, if you think about the service lines we're counting on, particularly in the short term, to help us turn around these negative margins, you look to our core service lines that produce margins, things like neurosciences and cardiac. And of course, those two rely on ICU care for many of their patients. That's a really hard thing to staff from a nursing perspective right now. Other specialties like orthopedics, not immune because on the nursing front, it's frankly easier to staff an ASC these days with our OR nurses than it is the hospital OR. We see some real challenges on the nursing front for some of our core service lines. It also hits at a more frontline clinician level. If you think about the technicians that help support physicians, particularly in these service lines, think of all the diagnostic testing we see in neurosciences, in cardiac, even in ortho. Most of the conditions that we treat there rely on some form of diagnostics to either identify and confirm that there is an issue and or plan treatment. Right now, we're seeing technician shortages across the board of all types, across multiple service lines, really driven by the fact that some of those programs closed over the last decade. It's interesting. I went on the computer and just to test, searched for neurodiagnostic certificate in Illinois. And in the entire state of Illinois right now, there are two, that's right, just two programs, one in Chicago and one in Springfield, our state capital. We're seeing hospitals actually consider bringing those programs in-house. They're going to have to create their own pipelines because they're not going to be able to find it outside. 
That's a nice list there, Jennifer. The only other thing I would add to that is something broader we see happening across the physician landscape, and that's this increase in subspecialization, which has proved in some cases to be a bit of a double-edged sword. On the one hand, you have a physician workforce that's able to increasingly treat these very medically complex patients. But it's also leading to extended training pathways for this workforce and increased competition for them. And that's accelerating some of the disparities or the uneven distribution of this workforce. And this physician workforce is also, they work within a specific lane and they're not necessarily compelled to expand beyond that lane. And that also leads to a decline in those generalist roles. And the communities that are hit most are often our smaller rural communities where those generalists wear multiple hats. And that's a trend that was consistent regardless of the service line that you looked at. It's interesting to hear you both talk about those different areas and having spent some time working in the service lines over my career. Some of those keep coming back up, but they're just amplified now. And it's just really interesting to see where it is today in terms of where the big pain points are. Over the past several years, we've seen an increase in the number of employed specialists. So building off of that physician lens there that Janelle ended on, has that trend continued? And what are some of the big storylines in physician employment? We have certainly seen employment steadily increase over the last two decades to the point where if you look at cardiovascular, for example, 80 to 85 percent of physicians are employed, either by a health system or some sort of corporate entity, typically a private equity-backed group. It's not just unique to CV, oncology. We actually see higher levels of employment, even fiercely independent specialties like orthopedics. Now 50% of them are employed by health systems. So this is a trend that has continued to move through and it's really taken hold. What I think is really interesting as we consider employment is that as prevalent as it's become today, there are a couple of challenges on the horizon that we are keeping our eye on and we think health systems will want to do that too. First, there are multiple state efforts to challenge corporate practice of medicine laws. So the idea that physicians in certain states cannot be employed by a corporate entity, we've sort of let that slide, but a a recent court case in California that impacts the largest emergency department physician staffing group is on the docket. And so we'll see what that brings, but it may be harder for corporate entities to employ physicians than what we've seen currently. The FTC is also in on this game. They're taking a look at potentially banning non-compete clauses, which is a typical part of an employment agreement for most physicians that could make it less attractive for health systems and corporate entities to offer employment, frankly, if they can't ensure they can keep them there. And then the third one we started to see is this movement toward unionization. It's mostly been residents so far, but what does that mean as we think about physicians as employees? More to come there, but it's definitely an interesting time on the employment front. Thank you, Jennifer. Janelle, given all these moving pieces, what do health systems do to support and optimize their service line workforce today? The reality is the health systems are always going to deal with this imbalance between supply and demand that reiterates the need for optimization. One thing came very clear in our research, and that's there's opportunity with team-based care across all service lines as a way to both improve access, but also optimize this precious workforce. How that will look and who's on that team is going to vary, obviously, by service line. There's three roles in particular where we see great opportunity for them to play a greater role in delivering patients 
patient care. The first won't surprise you. Those are our advanced practice providers. There are certain specialties like orthopedics where they have done a really nice job of integrating them into the care team. But that's not true of other service lines where there needs to be an opportunity for them to do everything from manage their own panels, see new patients or own or manage different parts of the patient journey. One of my favorite examples actually comes from oncology, a topic near and dear to my heart. But recently at Vanderbilt, they launched an NP-led survivorship clinic for patients that were completing radiation. It's a nice, tangible example, and we want to see more of that. The second one that came up is really the role of pharmacists. Given their clinical training and service lines that have increasingly complex medical regimens, think of oncology, CV, I think there's a real opportunity to use this workforce to evaluate, educate, and monitor patients. It's a true workforce that's being underutilized right now, if we're being honest. The third one is thinking about physical therapists. They can be a real way to help manage your patients as a source of triage or first stop. Study after study shows when we have direct access to PT, there are patient outcomes that improve both from a clinical perspective, less need for surgical interventions, and patients love that. And it can also be a way to free up our orthopedic surgeons to really handle those high acuity situations that really require the input of a surgeon. Jennifer, I know there's also definitely some tech stories here. We see a lot of movement around tech being a way to augment our workforce. Janelle, you and I often talk with members that when you're facing a workforce shortage, you have a couple of levers to pull. You can change who does the work. And that's what you were just describing with team-based care. You can eliminate unnecessary work. And that's a lot of the really good stuff we do with our lean teams. Or you can make the work more efficient. And that's really where technology steps in and, and has a role. And it wouldn't be a, a podcast in 2023 if we didn't throw out the words AI and chat GPT. Let's go ahead and check that box. But acknowledge that, truthfully, all kidding aside, that kind of technology really does make a difference. And if we think about removing the burden of the EHR from our physicians, it's not even so much a productivity play, but just a burnout reduction play, which is going to be really important in the coming years. But there's probably some non-clinical roles that I also think that technology really impacts. If you think about things in your revenue cycle department, like prior auth, a lot of the automation can reduce the need for some of those roles that are maybe specialized and still expensive and hard to find. If I think about phone triage, we have lots of nurses that we pay to sit on the phone and triage. We can do a lot with the chat bot these days. And even things like just a clinic register registration, front desk person, the more we use digital and online check-in, we just need fewer of those types of people. So as we think about the sort of global challenge of workforce, that technology has multiple applications. In CV, there are service lines where their patients are likely to have multiple conditions. Cardiovascular services is a great example. If you have a heart disease, you're four times more likely to also have diabetes. In addition to kind of our traditional view of interdisciplinary teams, there's also this rise of people who say teams of teams, which bring together different medical disciplines to treat those particularly complex patients. A good example of that is university hospitals out in Cleveland. They have a vascular and metabolic center where they support patients who have heart disease, endocrinology issues, as well as nephrology. And they bring all those specialists together. And it can be a way to treat a really tricky population, but a really also a way to bring different people kind of to the table. So how we organize our precious resources in workforce is going to matter. That's kind of what I hear you saying. You've talked a lot about the importance of 
the service line focus in workforce and the team component, Janelle. But I'm curious, when we start to think about these aging population patients who come with multiple chronic conditions, now you're crossing multiple service lines. How do you bring those teams together? That's actually seeing the emergence of something known we call those teams of teams. You think of a service line like cardiovascular services, where it's more than likely that those patients also have other chronic conditions. It's diabetes, issues related to kidney disease. We're starting to see the formation of these teams that bring together some of those different medical specialties under one roof to be able to both improve access, but also enhance the clinical experience for that patient population. A great example of that is some work they're doing over at University Hospital hospitals in Cleveland. They have a vascular and metabolic center that brings together cardiology, endocrinology, nephrology, and advanced imaging, all to come together to be able to treat those patients. Managing chronic disease has been this long puzzle that organizations have struggled with. So it's exciting to see some movement knowing that we're going to have to be better about this going forward. Great. That's going to be so important as to how we pull and coordinate and all the technology that Jennifer talked about is going to help those teams of teams work together. Wanting to think about a slightly different angle on the workforce thing that I know you guys have spent a lot of time talking about in the past, but we're talking today about redesigning these roles and responsibilities with teams. But as we think about attracting and keeping talent, what can health systems do? Is there something different or is this still about the same old solutions? It's a little bit of both, Jamie. Let's be honest. Some of this is about attracting talent and that gets down to compensation. So there will continue to be pressure to offer competitive salaries. And for certain specialties, as we recruit physicians, it will go beyond salary to things like equity. They will want the opportunity for that additional revenue stream. But what we really see folks focused on, and this is across the board, not just clinical roles, but others as well, and really coming out of the pandemic is this desire for flexibility. And so when we think about recruiting and retaining talent in our key service lines, this idea of listening to what people want and being creative about what we offer and more flexible, that's going to be the difference for organizations that are successful in recruiting in the coming years. And maybe that's flexible shifts or flexible schedules during the week for some of our nurses and techs. Certainly it's hybrid roles or the use of virtual, especially as we think about things like call for physicians, which frankly no one loves, but it's part of the job. So how can we make it more tenable? And then really just anything that helps with work-life balance, it's top of mind across all roles right now. And so organizations are smart to be putting that front and center in whatever they're offering. The last thing I throw out there is this idea of how long it takes to train. And Janelle mentioned that earlier. What that also means is it's really expensive. If you look at the average neurosurgeon, they come out of training almost $200,000 in debt. That is a seemingly insurmountable mountain for some of these folks. And it's true for specialized nurse roles and physicians. So certainly we continue to see loan forgiveness, tuition, reimbursement. But in some cases, that assumes you could manage to pay it up front and then be reimbursed on the back end. And for some, that's just not a reality. So we're seeing the rise of tuition-free medical school, scholarships that mean a tuition-free nursing school paid for by philanthropy or by government. Those are interesting solutions we think to what is inevitably a long and expensive training path. 
that discussion of tuition is a nice link. And we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the role of diversity, equity, and inclusion and ensuring that the workforce that we have in place reflects the communities and populations that they serve. If we're being really honest, we have not done enough work within healthcare more broadly to advance this work. The current physician workforce is predominantly white. And when we look across individual specialties, there are wide gender disparities or imbalances as well. There's a few things organizations can do. In response to COVID, during the residency recruitment and interviewing process, they had to turn to a virtual model. And they actually saw a lot of benefits from that. More diverse classes in terms of what schools people attended, their socioeconomic backgrounds, gender. And I think that's work that we can continue. We also have to acknowledge that there's a a large chunk of our residency population who are trained and come from international medical schools. So what can we do during the interview and recruitment process to be attuned and sensitive of cultural norms and customs so that they feel truly supported during that process and once they come to work within our system? I think that's a great closing comment, Janelle, just the importance of how we look at our workforce and how it reflects the communities that we're serving. And being sensitive to that extra layer sometimes can make it even more challenging to keep and maintain that workforce, but it's so important in terms of what we do as health system providers. That's all we have time for today. I want to thank Janelle and Jennifer for their time, their insights, their perspective on workforce at the service line and specialty level. Really appreciate that today. And thank you all to our listeners for your time and attention. We'll see you again next time on SG2 Perspectives. Thanks so much for listening to SG2 Perspectives. As always, I really value your feedback, input, comments or ideas for episodes, and you can reach us at sg2perspectives at sg2.com. Additionally, I recommend that you check out some of the other Visient podcasts, which cover a range of clinical and operational areas. Those can all be found at visientinc.com backslash podcasts. Mm-hmm.